So welcome to this special episode of York Hospital Ball with the new Chief Executive of York City Football Club, Alistair Smith. Before the interview, I have to uh, start by saying a big thank you to Jim Calverley for initially sort of suggesting the interview if I'd be up for doing it, which obviously I was. And Jim's a big part of the Supporters Trust and also our spin-off podcast, The Crux of It. And it was just really nice to kind of, I know I mainly focus on nostalgic eras of York City, but it was nice to kind of be asked to do something that kind of brings it up to the, the present day. With regards to the interview itself, I started off by asking Alistair um, where his support from York City started and, uh, you know, just to give fans a bit of an insight into what sort of support they were getting on the board. And I tried really hard to make this interview as unique as I possibly could. So I know there was the fans forum. Fortunately, I couldn't make that because I was travelling back from Spain, but I did watch it on YouTube the next day. And although some of the sound quality wasn't wasn't the best, I, I was able to kind of write down some of the questions that were asked and try to avoid sort of uh, duplicate. Uh, answers people have already heard so hopefully that comes across in the interview I tried to ask questions that I'd personally want answering but then also ones that I've seen banded about on social media that people don't feel has been answered in the past so hopefully you'll, you'll find this an informative interview as well as one that gives you hope for the future Because it was quite a last minute thing this interview um, we haven't got a sponsor for this episode but as ever if you uh, enjoy these episodes or enjoy this episode in particular please consider donating to our charity York Hospital Radio and we rely heavily on funding and you know you can do that quite easily via our Just Giving site which is justgiving.com forward slash York Hospital Radio and all donations are greatly received but for now please enjoy our special episode with Alistair Smith So Alistair, great, great to speak to you and, and speak to someone who's living the dream really for many supporters. You know, I think a lot of York City fans would grow up wishing to play for the club, but kind of if you can't do that, second would be to be on the board somehow. So what has the sort of past month been like for you? Hi, Dan. You're absolutely right. It's definitely living the dream. And um, as a kid growing up, there was no way I was ever going to play for York City. So this is definitely the only way I would have uh, had my dream. So the last year, uh, last year, sorry, the last month, feels like a year <laughs> it really it's been getting in there just listening learning finding out what's going on what we can do what we can't do uh, how the football club works you know how you have all these contracts with GLL with the council with CGC with the SMC how they all fit together and trying to sort of just understand how everything works yeah and let's go back to where your love for York City sort of started I believe you got the bug in the late 1970s yes I mean as a kid growing up, I was in um, Millington, so a little village near Pocklington, about three miles up on the Yorkshire Walls. And my family, uh, my father wasn't really interested in football. He had no interest. And as a kid in those days, I think probably 90% supported Leeds. You'd have a few supporting Manchester United over the other side of the Pennines, of course. And then you would have, from Pocklington, a few that I knew that supported York City, but there weren't many. So... My first game was Barry Swallow's testimonial, and there were a lot of um, ex-Leeds players playing. Well, it might not have been ex-Leeds players. They might have been playing at the time. So Billy Bremner, uh, I think Frank Gray, David Harvey, maybe Paul Maidley, Peter Lorimer. But then there were others like Bobby Charlton, um, some you know really good players there. So a few of us went on the supporters coach, which was run by the Pocklington branch of the York City Supporters Club. He used to run a coach from Pocklington, to every home game 
And then they would um, occasionally run a coach to an away game. So I got allowed to go. I think I was 14 and I was allowed to go by my mum and dad. Um, it was some friends of theirs that actually ran the the coaches, Jim and Robin Frey. Uh, Jim had been chairman of the Pocklington Supporters Club for years. Um, so they sort of said, yeah, don't worry, we'll look after him. So I went actually to uh, watch the game and I stood on the Bootham end. And I, I've got this massive memory of walking up the steps at the back of the Bootham end. The floodlights were on and I walked over and I just saw this greenest sort of piece of grass I'd ever seen in my life. It was just, as a 14-year-old kid in that day, it was just mesmerising. And um, watched the game. Uh, York, I think, one four two, if my memory serves me right. And uh, I was cooked. And so a few weeks later, uh, early November, I went to watch York play Southport, which was my first ever league game. Um, stood on the shippo, as it was then. Uh, and it just took off from there. And, of course, my mum and dad were a little bit worried about hooliganism and all that sort of stuff. So it was a case of, well, you can go to a game where there's not going to be a big away following, hence Southport. But my second league game was Hartlepool United on Boxing Day, where there was a big away following. So that kind of went by the board straight away. But Robin and Jim, they, they were always sort of made sure that I was going to get home safely, I guess. And uh, that's how it started. And then I just kept on going and going. I went that season and we, I think it was 78. I went to my first away game, went to Doncaster Rovers for a Tuesday night uh, on the coach from Pocklington again. And then eventually I kind of progressed to, I was getting the Pullman's coaches with the travel club to places like Crewe and Port Vale and places like that. So that's how it all kind of started really for me and a lot of the kind of I imagine being on the coach you get to know everyone don't you that goes on the coach and the camaraderie that goes with it and that's almost sort of part of the experience of going to football as well as kind of what's on the pitch oh absolutely I mean it was it was great to have those people around you that had that same sort of passion for York City and eventually from Pocklington we ended up running minibuses to certain games we went to Newport County twice on a Tuesday night in successive years, we went to Torquay, we went to Aldershot, uh, we took one to Chelsea in the League Cup in the 80s. So, you know, we had a group that seemed to come together of maybe not a big group, but sort of 10, 12 of us that would travel to these sort of games together. And we had a great time uh, on our minibus and traveling around and stopping for a beer and, uh, and what have you. So, yeah, it, it, they were good times. They were, they were really good times. And in terms of sort of York City's iconic moments, whether that be the 101-point season, beating Arsenal in the FA Cup, Man United, Wembley, Wembley twice, what, what's your sort of personal favourite moment you ever think of supporting you? I know it's probably difficult to, to answer, but is there anything in particular that you think, ah, oh, that, that was the pinnacle for me? Well, I mean, you've hit all the highs there virtually. I think that we have had in those 45 years that I've been supporting the club. So I guess the one that I look back on that I probably didn't realise at the time was the 101 points team. I don't think at the time I realised just how good that team was or what a great achievement that was. Johnny Byrne, Keith Walwyn were my heroes and you just turned up every single game expecting a win. I think we got we got beat by Torquay United at home. It's our only home defeat. And the shock of having lost a game at home was just like, you know, what's going on? And I think, yeah, so that would stand out for me, I think. Because the cup games or the playoff games, they're kind of more one-off or two or three-off. Whereas that was 46 games and we were just phenomenal 
for all of those games, probably bar the one when we went to Blackpool and lost. Yeah, um, that, that in was front of match TV, the day. Yeah, match of the day. Yeah, I mean, I remember speaking to John Byrne, and he he said exactly that that they used to go out and expect to win and expect to score goals every week. It must have been a great time to to be yeah. a supporter. Yeah, I mean, you, your former chair of of Apocalypse Supporters Club, like you mentioned there, and long time involvement with York City South. You're obviously someone who likes to get involved with the club and, and having the supporters at the heart of it. How did those ventures sort of start up then? Well, the Pocklington Supporters Club, we, we kind of folded. I, I think it was after Jim Frey kind of had re- retired. So it was actually just before I moved south that we thought, you know, we need to get this going again. So we'd held a meeting uh, in a pub and got a few people going and we, we were interested in, in getting that started. But then I ended up moving south with work pretty soon after that. So I never really did that much. We just got it up and running and it's been up and down I think in the years since somebody tried to get going and they've had these riding Minster men and then the Pocklington Minster men and there's, there's not been any real continuity to that since unfortunately but then we went moved down south and I worked in an office in Rygate and there were I don't know, probably less than 40 people in there at the first point and then somebody was there a new guy was introduced round and he got to my we had cubicles in those days got to my cubicle and I said oh this is the other York City supporter so that's how I met a guy called Simon Newton um, so we both worked for Kimberly Clark and then somehow and I'm not sure how but a guy called John Catton got in contact with us and I, and I honestly can't remember how he said hey I've got this idea you're you know a, a supporters branch down in the south what do you think so we met John in a pub in Hawley and we sort of thrashed it out thought it was a good idea so we decided we would have an AGM uh, we only knew about I think five people at that point that might be interested so um, we had an AGM up in London and we divvied out the jobs and John didn't want to be chairman so I was voted as chairman and I think John was secretary Simon was treasurer uh, we had Phil Howden was was one of those original members and a guy called Paul Hilton. And I think just as we about as just as we were having a beer and about to leave, there's a guy called Tommy turned up. I can't remember his second Sheridan, I think. And so we took the role on. And we thought, yeah, this'll this'll be good. We'll maybe get 20 members if we're lucky. That first year, I think we got 64 members. And then the following year we had 118 members. We literally press ganged people at games in the South, just going up to them and saying, where do you live? okay, you need to sign up to York City South. And we did, and we were very successful. And in those days, of course, we didn't have social media like you've got now. So uh, trying to get news from from York of the football club actually wasn't very easy. So we used to get press cuttings sent down to me, which I would then just type into like a little newsletter and send that out every few weeks just to uh, members to to keep them engaged in what's going on. And then we always have um, uh, a monthly meeting and we'd have 20 or more people turn up at a monthly meeting just to talk about York City. So those early days, it was a lot easier because there weren't the other distractions that people see now. Uh, They've got everything that they need. So it's a little bit harder what you can actually give them. So we did travel sharing. We um, we had our own football team and we played friendlies against uh, other football uh, supporters groups. So I think... We played Fulham once at the training ground up in York when they brought a team up and we, we played before Brentford and before a Torquay match and, and other things. So it was a very active scene and it, it was great to be involved in. And I was chairman probably for, going to guess, around 15 years before. And I I've always said, if anybody else would like to have a go, I'm more than willing to step back. And then somebody else was interested in having a go. So I stepped back and I started on the committee and we had, went through a couple of chairmen. And then I been spent a year in America with work, came back 
And um, Derek Feesby, the chairman, was just relocating back to York. So I, I said, oh, don't worry, I'll step in. So chairman again. And now I've, I've had to say to York City South, look, guys, I'm, I'm not going to have time to be a chairman anymore. I'm just way too busy. So I'll stay on the board if, as, as long as they want me. And, but yeah, it's something I'm really proud of because that started in 1996 and it's still going strong. And, and you mentioned that 1996, and I think that was around the time that York City played Everton. And I, and I, I read a lovely oh, tribute yeah. that you play, paid to John Catton, you mentioned before. Yeah. I just wondered if you wanted to retell that story because I thought it was really nice. That, uh, yeah, so, I mean, John was was one of the loveliest of guys and he was another guy that would do anything for for the branch and for York City. So um, we decided we would hire a, a minibus and we would drive up to Liverpool for the, for the game. So John hired this bus and it was very successful. We got up there eventually. Uh, it was speed limited. So it took us quite a long time, but we had plenty of time. We got up there, time for a beer, went to the game, got a 1-1 draw. Then we set off back and this bus chugged down the M6 and then the M40 and it's getting later and later and the bus won't go any faster and it was like oh. and then we we got to London and John literally drove around London just dropping every single person off at the house so by the time we got to Rygate it was something like 5am in the morning so then I had to jump in my car drove home to Maidstone which is about an hour away. And I arrived just as my next door neighbour was leaving for work up in London. So I was, oh, hi. I went in, had an hour's sleep, got back in my car and drove back to Rygate for a day's work. But that was typical John. He just would do anything for anybody. And he didn't want to see anybody being in a stuck in, in London somewhere. So yeah, he drove us all over. But, but couple that with the speed limit of going down at about 50 or 55 miles an hour. That was a long night. Good job. You all got a good result. <laughs> It'd have been a long journey if we'd have lost, can you imagine? <laughs> um, I, can, I can imagine it's it's very different sort of supporting your own team when you no longer live locally, almost like a long distance relationship, especially when the club is is maybe doing poor. How, how did you manage to sort of keep that passion sort of strong? Well, I think once you're hooked, you're hooked and, and things don't change. And when I've got two boys, so when they came along, we didn't go as often as, a, as I had, you know, over the years it, it was harder. And then, of course, they started playing football on a Saturday morning. So then you were limited to how far you could go to watch a game but it's still in the blood and and you still go to every game you can and you're meeting with fellow enthusiasts you know with these York City South meetings and that kept it it all going strong and it's great now that all those youngsters from the early, early days who um, used to see me traipsing my kids around you know having to look after them have kids running around the terraces in nappies now I see them doing exactly the same thing and have a little smile on my face thinking, been there, done that. And let's bring it on to the present day. You'd taken early retirement after 28 years at Kimberley Clark. A decision I would imagine was with a view to winding down um, or maybe yeah. your family thought you were winding down. How and when did you get approached to get involved with this takeover of a club? And you know how did that all come about? Yeah, well, I, you're absolutely right. I was lucky enough to be in a position to take early retirement. I was something like 57 I think. And um, I was playing tennis. I was bought myself a kayak. I was walking the dog. I was mountain biking, having a great time. And then on the, there's only one Arthur Bottom newsletter. So one of our York City South members had written an article, which basically was complaining about the supporters trust. So I thought you're always looking for people to come to meetings because now you need to have you know, a guest at a meeting. So um, I thought, oh, there's an idea. I can ring up Mike Brown and say, hey, Mike, how about 
come into one of our meetings, you know, and we can discuss this and, and maybe change somebody's opinion. So um, I contacted Mike and that must have been, may have been February time. So it wasn't that long ago. And when we just chatted and he said, oh, I'd been down before to a York City South meeting, et cetera, et cetera. So we discussed that, yeah, he, he COVID permitting and everything. He, he would be interested in coming down. And, and at the end, I just said, you know, I'm a big uh, supporter of the trust. And had I been in York, I would love to have got involved. But, you know, living 276 miles away, kind of didn't make it very easy. And of course, we've just gone through COVID. So, you know, working methods have changed. You know, people use Zoom and and other um, teams and other things and you have remote working. He said, you know what? He said, we, we don't have that many face-to-face meetings. And what we do have now are more before a game. So I don't see why it, it couldn't work. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. Well, I'm interested. So then nothing happened. And Mike was really busy with this this takeover. Or, well, the sale of Booth and Crescent work it was at that point which of course included the in the end game uh, eventually with um, Jason selling having to sell to the supporters trust because of the preemption rights and um, when the sale was announced I just dropped Mike a note and I just said hey congratulations you know you, I know you've worked millions of hours fantastic job well done and shortly after he rang me up and said you're still interested so I said yeah but what would I be doing because I don't want to be just sitting there not contributing I want to actually have a role and be doing something so we talked about my experience and everything and said okay yeah well we think that I can use you uh, you know on the trust or whatever so so that was it I said yeah I'm in count me in I'll come along be co-opted onto the board anyway things went on and of course then there was the possibility that the Jason would either sell or he would um, have or sell to the supporters trust. So got a phone call from Mike and he said, oh, he said, yeah, I've been talking. And he told me about Glenn Henderson and, and what have you. He said, so oh, I've just been talking to, to Glenn about your CV. And he said, oh, is he going to be on the, on the club board? And he said, but I told him, you know, you live 276 miles away and um, you are chairman of York City South. He said, but I did tell him we could probably twist your arm. So I'm thinking, okay, right, this is a bit out of the blue, bit of a shock, but I do like to get involved in in things and, you know, help out. So I wasn't against it. I didn't actually say yes, but we then went on and we started working and we started talking about things. And eventually the week before we came over, uh, we, the club was taken over. I went up to York and I met Mike and Glenn. I'd only met Mike once before and I met Mike and Glenn and we talked it and it was like, yeah, this is definite. So it, there was a break and Mike turned around and said, you know what? You've never officially actually said you want, you're willing to do this. So I just looked at him and thought, yeah, my wife's probably going to kill me, but yeah, I'm in. So I said, and I think then it was too late to say no anyway. So yeah, so I said yes. And that's how it all came about. So it happened a lot very quickly and out of the blue, really. I was going to say, was there any points where you didn't think it was ever going to happen? But it sounds like it, you've kind of come in quite late in the day or almost as it, as it yeah. were. Yeah, there weren't. Yeah, I didn't really have any time to think it isn't going to happen. I suppose, to be fair, there was a chance that Jason would have sold the club and then it might not have happened, depending on who uh, would have bought the club, whether they would want... Well, I guess they would have had to have supporters trust members on the board if they'd honoured all the agreements and the articles of association and everything. So, But it might not have been me, it might have been somebody else. Wouldn't have been Glenn if somebody else had bought the club. So... I guess, and as we got nearer and nearer the um, 30th of June, you worried more and more because you're then making plans and it was, you were getting excited and that, and then you were thinking something's going to go wrong. Yeah, but it didn't. So, yeah, so I didn't really have a lot of time to think it would never happen. A bit, bit of a whirlwind then. And sort of speaking of the sort of McGill family, given that you had involvement with supporters groups for a number of years, had your paths ever sort of crossed with the McGill family? Yeah, mainly Sophie, to be honest. I mean, you know, 
with York City South, we used to have a really good relationship with the club from um, mid nineties onwards. And of course, Sophie joined late nineties. So we knew Sophie was the main face of, with the supporters, I think. So I knew Sophie and, you know, she'd been down to some York City South meetings and, and had chats with us. Uh, we had had Douglas Craig down actually before. Well, obviously he decided he was going to remove Boven Crescent from the football club and put it in a separate holding company. And, you know, we had various other people come down. So, yeah, it was mainly Sophie and the office staff, I would guess, that we knew. So out the McGill family was Sophie. And, you know, she's now down in Tunbridge. So I actually went across, I think, four times last year, went out and to watch Tunbridge play because I got a friend who I used to work with who is on the ground staff there. And he'd said to Sophie, and she said, oh yeah, I must come across. So we came across and we met up with Sophie and um, her husband and, and the kids and her mom. And uh, yeah, and it was great to catch up and really good to talk football uh, with her again. You know, And although she is on the board at Tunbridge now, she, her heart is, is still York City, as you know from having interviewed her. Yeah, absolutely. And that- She's the right place for a York City South member now, isn't she, really? Absolutely. Um, I, yes, a good point. I need to check if she's a member or not. <laughs> well, once that first day had come and went, you know, like we said, it was a dream come true for you. You know, imagine the euphoria and the, the adrenaline of that first day holding a scarf up with Glenn and the pictures and the interviews yeah. and everything. And I imagine it'll have been a, a whirlwind. What's the second day like when when the work actually has to happen? What, what what was it like waking up that second day? And, you know, because you've done the interviews, you've done the kind of press and everything. But, but I guess the real hard work starts then. Yes, it's probably worry thinking oh, what have we done? You know, because there's a, it's a hell of a responsibility, you know, looking after the football club. I mean, you know, if anything went wrong, could never forgive yourself because it's your football club that you've spoiled all these years. So, yeah, you're right. The adrenaline gets you through the first day, maybe the first two days, but then kind of reality sits in. You're thinking, okay, what do we need to do? How are we going to do it? What can we do? How do we make sure we've got enough money? Cash flow is vitally important. Then you're going to look at the profit and loss and look at getting involved in all the contracts and everything else. And it's it, it was a bit overwhelming. And, you know, very quickly uh, we had a call from the National League who their rules say they need to approve a takeover before it happens. Well, with the speed this happened, because we didn't know till Friday, July the 1st, that we're in a position to take over the club and it happened on Tuesday the 5th, you know, they weren't included. So they got, they were a little bit annoyed with us, I think. Anyway, we we spent a lot of time putting together documentation and our budget and our opening balance sheet and everything for the league. And um, touch wood, they've been... They've been happy ever since. Um, I think they were, it was the speed of everything just worried everybody. Is that kind of like the fit, fit and proper person's sort of tests that they like to do? Is that is that what that, well, that means? There is that as well. That is actually with the FA, not with the National League. Okay. But the the National League wait for the FA to say yes, we're happy. So we had to fill the forms in, and then we had okay. So who was going to approve the forms that we sent to the to the FA? And that was trying to work that through at one point, you know, because Jason was like the main um, director that was still left, uh, but he didn't know uh, Glenn or myself. So he said, well, how can I sign those forms? I don't know these guys, which absolutely fair comment. So we had to work out with the FA and, and Mike Brown did so much work on the technical side of all this that um, he, he's helped make life so much easier for us. Walking through the minefield of the, the FA, the National League, the bank accounts, trying to get all that changed, the bank mandate, getting on the, the accounting system, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's not been smooth. There's been lots of bumps in this last month. Well, hopefully we're getting to a position now where we're going to go into some calmer waters and then we can really sit and take stock of what we need to do going forward. 
to make the club sustainable in the long term. How does it compare sort of working 28 years for a business like Kimberley Clark? You know, they, they say football is a business, but it's not like any other business. How, how have you found that transition and how, how, how easy do you think your skills are transferable into like working for yeah. a football club? I think there are some bits of it that are different, but then there's a lot that is, is absolutely the same, especially if you looked at uh, how the business works. So at Kimberley Clark, we're really interested in staff are our number one asset. So you look after your, your workforce, then you're doing everything you can to look after and provide your consumers with everything they need for a better life. Um, whether that was the nappies that we used to make, the tissues, toilet paper, et cetera, et cetera, or the feminine care products. And then when you get to the football club, you think, well, staff yeah absolutely we've got to look after our staff we've got fantastic staff there really good people which was uh, you know great when we got in there but then also that you've got to look after your consumers which now are your cold fans and you've got to give them an experience that they want to come back again and again and again because if you don't and that's not just winning on the pitch and playing nice football but it's also the experience of you know being able to go and enjoy the match day experience to to have a beer if they want one something to eat and something just to excite them and want them to come back so in, from that perspective it's actually quite similar um the two sort of companies if i call them companies um but of course football there are differences so i mean there's always bits of different cash going out the, there's Contracts for players are different from contracts that I would normally have had for staff in in Kimberley Clark because, you know, they're all one year, two year deals or whatever. Well, you don't really have that in in Kimberley Clark, and also, you know, even the staff, there's there's kind of a, a gentleman's agreement that you don't go and poach other clubs' staff, be, you know, behind their backs. Whereas out in in um, the manufacturing world I was in somebody thought oh they do a good job they could go talk to them and they'd give a month's notice or three months notice and off they'd go and there was no sort of loyalty there from that perspective so there are some differences but overall I, I don't see it as a as a certainly not a major stumbling block yeah I, I think that the, the thing you mentioned there about sort of fan retention is absolutely right because if I think back to my own kind of childhood you know I started going in 1992 we got promoted in 1993 beat Man United a couple of years later beat Everton the year after that but then as it got towards the end of the 90s, all the people that the group that I used to go with, they sort of one by one sort of dropped off because the club weren't doing well on the pitch. Whereas I think if it had been more incentive and more of a match day experience, that, that might have kept a few of them kind of going. And it is important, isn't it, to sort of for the long term future of York City? 100%. We've got to get the young supporters in and keep the young supporters. I think it was, was it John Askey made the comment that he'd been to Booth and Crescent when he'd brought probably Macclesfield there and he'd seen the ageing fan base and thought, blimey, this club's going to have no fans in 10, 20 years because everybody was getting older. Says now we do seem to have a lot of the youngsters getting interested. And what's great is, of course, after the promotion last season, they've now got their own memories. So you talk about your 92, your 93 season, you know, playing Manchester United Everton. You've got those memories. Well, now those young supporters have got memories themselves of our game against Boston and the game against Brackley and Trolley. So, you know, you give them those memories and they will cherish that. And they actually get you through the, the times when we're not successful. Because there will be times all clubs are cyclical so that they're, they're successful and they have a period where they're, they're not really successful and then it comes around and we, we have another period of success. So, you know, it's, it's going to be making sure that once we are, if we're in a period where we're not doing so well on the pitch, that what are we doing to make sure that those 
supporters still want to come to the games. And now you're kind of a few weeks down the line. What do you see as your priorities as, as chief executive moving forward? At the moment, I would say looking at the cash flow, making sure that we've got cash to pay the bills and that we can get through this season. Because once we get through this season, you know, we have a lot, a number of longer term plans that will help bring in um, a lot more cash inflow. So, you know, we're working with the council, the SMC and the rugby club to bring in a nice big TV that would allow us to put advertising on it. And um, I think we mentioned the other night, Spennymore, they've got £80,000 a year coming in because they've got a TV. Well, if they can get £80,000 a year, we're going to aim for a lot more than that. You know, we should do 100000 or more. So we've got ideas like that coming online that we want to do. We probably need to move a bit more into digital marketing. There's some opportunities there. It's not something I put my hand up and say I really understand it all, but I'm told that there are plenty of opportunities in the digital marketing front that we haven't even tapped into yet. So that type of thing is a possibility to build a brand and to build the income streams for going forward. I mean, the, the board currently consists of yourself and Glenn, doesn't it? I think you've talked about kind of that, that board being developed and having more diversity on it and, and stuff like that. Where, where are you kind of at with, with that timescale of, of the board being formed? At the moment, I'll be honest, we haven't given it a second thought. At the moment, we're still just got our sleeves rolled up, diving into different things. Once we can identify, you know, where the gaps are that we need to fill, that's when we can start saying, okay, well, who would we want to to do that? And of course, Glenn has the next person on the board should be Glenn's appointment because he's the majority shareholder. Eventually, you know, we will always keep that ratio where Glenn has more directors on the board than the supporters trust because he is the majority shareholder. And preferably someone who has digital marketing on the CV. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that could well be where we need to need to be looking. You're absolutely right. And what's your relationship like with Glenn? I mean, you met, you mentioned there that you, you kind of came in sort of towards the end and and you, you kind of had that meeting with Glenn. You know, that that's quite exciting, I imagine, but also quite daunting as well, sort of working with someone that you, you don't really know. So I imagine you're still sort of getting to yeah. know him. What, what's it been like working with Glenn so far? It's been really good working with Glenn. Uh, we hit it off straight away, which is a relief because if we hadn't, it would have been very difficult working together. He's been a businessman himself, so he's diving into all sorts of stuff. And at the moment, I'm more trying to concentrate on picking up the accounts uh, and everything, whereas... He's looking into some of the other sides of it that he needs to do. So he'd be looking into, you know, he's been working on the restructuring the staff. He's been working on some of our advertising uh, opportunities, you know, talking to punters. So he's looking at talking to fans, you know, he walks the pitch every time, um, which he's, he's great at doing that. Again, out meeting people and really meeting the fans. He likes to get out, meet the fans, talk to them. And he's been doing a lot of that. So it's actually worked quite well so far. So it sounds like your skill sets sort of complement each other then. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I'm, so my background is all finance and, and compliance and that type of stuff. So it's probably the more dour or boring of the two. But it's essential in, in making sure we have a good business model going forward. You know, you, you need that detail, whereas... He is more the going out there and saying, I want this and I want that and do this, do that. So, so yeah, we do complement each other very well. And I presume you're still 278 miles away from York. Is, is that proving a barrier? I mean, like you mentioned before about COVID, a lot of people, more people are working remote now. Is, is that something that you've, you know, has been a 
help really uh, definitely been a help i don't think without covid i wouldn't be involved now because people have seen that there's different ways of working i think maybe where at the football club we don't use meetings like zoom or teams as much as maybe we used to using in kimberly clark because i used to have a team that was all over at one point all over um, Europe, the Middle East and Africa, they're all in different countries. So we used to use this way of working anyway before COVID. So I think, you know, there's some technical bits that we could do with the football club to make it a little bit easier to for people to work from home or people to be located a bit further away. So yeah, so it's, 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 it's not a major problem. I wish petrol were a bit cheaper because the cost of driving up and down every week is like astronomical. But apart from that, it, it does work quite well. And what I'm trying to, we've got a lot of games in the South. So what I'm trying to do is to be going up there when there's the week before a Saturday game up in York. But if we're playing Maidstone on Saturday, so I've been, well, I, I stayed up over the weekend and then Came back on Monday night straight after the fans forum. And then I'm down here now until the Maidstone game. And then I'll be up next week before the Eastley game back in York. Oh, and the Solid Hall. That'll be in between. So so it's uh, trying to work everything around, you know, the, the matches we've got and making sure I'm smart with my travelling. And you, you mentioned before about this idea of sustainability, something that I as a tight Yorkshireman and someone who feels <laughs> that the club's overspent for, for many years, I like the sound of it. How, how realistic is it? Um, you hear that football clubs hemorrhage money a lot of times. How, how do you think now you've been in the in post like a few weeks, What you've had a chance to look at the, the finances and everything. Is it still a realistic proposition? It is realistic. It's not going to be easy. So we need to look at uh, getting new ways of income coming in, as well as maximising the current income streams and we need to look at the expenditures to see can we can we save some money so competitive bidding for where we're spending money so rather than just going out and saying oh we've used this company for the last five years we'll just carry on using them we go hang on are they giving us value for money so we can go out and we can look at what other companies will give us and then say yes or no they are giving us value for money so there's all that type of stuff that we that we can do it won't be easy. And this year, I think, will be the worst of the future years for, for being sustainable. But I am convinced that we will get there. And the, the previous board spoke about the crowds needing to be over 4,000 to break even. Is that still the case with the sort of model that, that Glenn and, and yourself and the supporters trust? You know, is, is that still the case that crowds do need to kind of maintain? I know the, the attendance against working was very impressive, but yeah, is that still the case? They need to be around that level for the club to kind of be able to break even? This season, yes, they want we want them to be around a 4,000 level to break even. Anything higher than that, of course, is a, is a bonus. But this season, if we can get 4,000 fans, I think that'll get us near enough to break even with a fair wind on other costs, of course, because of course traveling this this year, traveling's gone up massively from last season. You know, plane budget's gone up massively. But then again, income is 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 going up. I mean, we had three thousand, I think three thousand two hundred, three thousand three hundred average last year. We're going to get some really big away followings this year from the likes of Oldham, Wrexham, Chesterfield, Halifax, Scunthorpe. So you know, I think four thousand is a, a reasonable target to have as a an average attendance for this this year and if we can do well who knows where we could end up because you know success on the pitch if, if it's just challenging for top seven i'm sure would would bring in even more fans i mean you know you look at all those fans that went to the boston playoff final well if we could bring a lot of those back we, we would have six thousand 
average crowds. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we need to keep trying to appeal to those people and get them back supporting the club. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think the Boston game, we could have had a bit even bigger attendance, haven't we? Had the restrictions not been in and, and even yeah. earlier on in the season against sort of Brackley and Kidderminster, there was restricted kind of attendances. You know, I think I think yeah. there is a, a first for it and, and demand for it. You know, a big factor is obviously going to be the club's income from season ticket sales. I think record... 2100 which which again is is really really impressive what what do those sales mean in in sort of layman's terms where where does that money go how much of that does john askey see for example or or is it kind of shoehorned elsewhere to kind of improve in the infrastructure of a club everything really about the football club and the income is is designed to give us as good a playing budget as possible so to be fair this year we're working mainly off the budget that was provided by the previous board because obviously by the end of june everything was being decided for the coming season. So, you know, the budget was was sorted out. Obviously, we honour those figures that are in that budget. And having those massive season ticket sales really brings us in a lump sum of money to start the season with. So for us, like a great start the season. But now we need to, to, to build on that. And, you know, we're, we're looking at ways we can do better. So we're looking at ideas of um, a mini season ticket, which would probably start with the Gateshead game. So maybe it can be used as Christmas presents for people, et cetera, et cetera. If we were to be successful, then that would also give rights to ticket allocations if we have, say, we had a playoff game or a big FA Cup game or something. So we're looking to do that. We're also looking that next season will be way quicker off the mark with things such as season ticket, getting a new kit out. So then it would give us the opportunity to say, you know what, you can pay for your season ticket in instalments instead of just one lump sum. So if you had three months at £100 a month, it might be a lot easier for people than one lump of £300. So lots of things we want to do. I think with the ticketing system, again, we're not using it um, to its capacity. So there's a, an opportunity there to have loyalty sort of points. And you can use that then for games that you, another another big FA Cup game or, or playoff games, or well, any game where you short tickets, you can use that loyalty system to say, hey, we reward the people that have been coming Maybe five times, you know, so you start off with you got your season ticket holders, they get first dibs, then people who've been 15 games or 10 games or five games and you're rewarding your your loyal supporters, which I think is is really important. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, that, that kind of comes off the back of the Boston game as well, wasn't it? A lot of kind of loyal supporters weren't able to get tickets, which which was a massive shame. And it feels like you kind of respond into things that fans have have kind of said about in, in, in the past, yeah. which, which is great. I believe the rent is paid up for York City for the next 10 years as well. What, what does that allow you to do as a board? Yes. Um, so that's all paid up, but we do for the next 10 years have like an enhanced fee that we have to pay for the stadium, which isn't as high as the rent, but it's still a substantial figure, which was basically came about because the football club wanted a bigger stadium than the council wanted to build. So they wanted to build a 6,000-seater stadium. Football club wanted eight to eight and a half thousand seater stadium so we are paying something towards that that'll stop when we we pay the uh, we start paying the the rent figure in about 10 years time so there's still a figure in there and of course the rent figure will still affect the profit and loss because you've got an amount sat on the balance sheet but it will go against the profit each season so it's not a cash figure but it still goes into the profit and loss account without making it sort of personal how, how damaging has it been for the club to have kind of a couple of your predecessors be, be football people rather than kind of business people? Is, it, is that kind of put the club back at all? Or, or, you know, has there been anything that you think, well, 
if it a business person that had been in there, this wouldn't have happened? No, I don't think it's made any difference at all. You know, the, the decisions weren't made by one person or two people. They were made by the board. So, you know, the, the, there was an option to have this the loyalty system for this year and they were offered it and they turned it down. So it's too late to change that now, unfortunately, because I'd love to have had it in for this season just in case. Because I think you know, everything about the football club is planning ahead. So not making a decision. Something happens and then you have made a decision. You need to be planning for every eventuality. So whether you win that game or lose that game and get into playoffs or you don't get into playoffs, go up or don't go up, you need to have those plans in place so that as soon as something happens, you're ready to go. You know, you, you can't be waiting for three, four weeks or more before you issue season tickets or, or whatever. You know, you need, to, you need to be ready to act. And I think that's an area we can really do so much better in is be proactive and know exactly what we're going to do, whatever um, scenario comes along. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. I think that'll be again music to to fans uh, supporters ears really because the the Boston game was it was a great example of that. I think the club kind of promoted this idea let let's sell out the L and the R once we realised it was a home game, and then when when the, all the ticketing problems happened and people can get tickets, it was oh we didn't expect to sell out, you know. So yeah. it's kind of like a bit of a um, you know contradicted the club contradicted itself in the kind of build up to that. Yeah. So in a situation like that. Before the Telford game, which even determined where we were going to end up playing Chorley, every scenario should have been mapped out with the actions you need to take and say, okay, this is this is what we will do if this happens and this is what we can do if this happens. And you then work it through with all the relevant people so that everything is addressed, you know, around the ticketing, around stewarding, around everything else before you actually get to that. And then, you know, okay, so some of your time's wasted. You know, you win a game and you just go, okay, so that scenario's gone. Now we concentrate on the one that we had that is one that's come to fruition. So, yeah, it's everything about it is about planning and and being ahead of the game. You you mentioned earlier about the fans forum, uh, which was on Monday night. Lots of answers about, I I mean, I I was traveling back from Spain, so I missed it, but I I watched it back on on YouTube the day after. It it felt to me like a lot of the answers you and Glenn were giving were kind of about these contracts, being tied up in contracts and, and things that you couldn't do. So I think it's quite difficult to sort of ask you, short term what, what things are going to happen but but long term sort of maybe five years down the line what what do you think the future of a club will look like what what do you want your legacy to be okay so five years time it'd be great if we could be in the football league because that gives you so much more income you know because then you could have a um, a reserve or an under 23 team but what we need to to in five years time is have a club that you know you're not saying to so you wouldn't be talking to me in five years time and saying do you think you can be sustainable? That would have been the norm. And that would have been, everybody would say, oh yes, we're going to have no problem breaking even. Now, whatever your your income levels are, and, and this applies to people's personal income as just the same as a football club, you tend to spend up to your level of income. The, the problem with that is that if you then lose your job, you suddenly can't pay your mortgage, you can't put food on the table. Same with if, if you've spent up to your level of income and you suddenly get relegated, then you haven't got the money to pay for the players or, or whatever because your crowds are going down and everything. So, you know, you always need to be a little bit prudent. And if we can build up some reserves for a rainy day, that would be a fantastic legacy. To know that we get a rainy day, we're still going to 
pay the mortgage on, put food on the table. What has been the f- one thing that has maybe surprised you most since coming in? Has there been anything where you've eyes raised and, oh, that, that surprises me? Uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. Do I think... If any one thing that surprised me, probably not. I think there's probably lots of things that have surprised me. I guess if I was to be totally honest, you know, you listen to the way the new ground was sold by the football club, uh, all these new income streams who are going to be able to do this, do that, do the other. And you, you get there and there's a very different reality. We owned Booth and Crescent. And because we don't own, the, own this stadium, we're just a tenant. And I think there's probably been... Uh, a tendency to act as if we owned it still, uh, and we can't. We and and we have to realise that, and, and we go with, with what we've got, and we'll make the best of it. But yeah, we we've got to stop. Yeah, yeah, this is our stadium because you know we've got to accept it's not our stadium. Yeah, uh, and I think that's a big difference. I think that uh, maybe the clubs suffered with that over the over the sort of last year or two. Um, the landscape in football has, has changed quite significantly since I mentioned when I was growing up in you know, watching York City in 1992, probably for yourself as well in the late 70s, you know, there's a lot more kind of uh, football clubs need to do more in the community. You know, there's a very successful York City ladies team as well. Is that kind of, are those sort of links, wider links, are you and Glenn looking to sort of develop them going forward? Yeah, we want to get much closer links with the foundation and the ladies team and make sure we really work this uh, community because out in the community is, of course, where the next generation of fans are coming from. So getting into schools, doing the soccer camps. So we, we really want the whole club to become closer uh, and, and work together more and really drive the brand out there so that people are aware. And, and somebody was telling me, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was telling me the other day, our centenary share has been a fantastic seller, really has outsold anything we've ever produced before. And they were saying that they, they've seen more shirts in the city centre than they've ever seen before. And they were outnumbering the Leeds or Man United or Chelsea or Liverpool or whatever shirts. And that's great to hear. So we need to get more of that and get people being proud of our city, proud of our football team um, and our football club and really wanting to to really go out there and, and show that they are proud York City supporters. You mentioned the shirts there and, and I was kind of looking at, because everything is so positive about you, you and Glenn coming in. I was trying to look for sort of fans, just to be balanced really, trying to look for where fans are sort of still got kind of gripes and stuff that, that were involved in, that weren't mentioned in the fans forum. So this, this idea of sponsorless shirts, I know that's something that people keep mentioning, you know, I think not having the JMP on it, for example, or a bit more of a kind of classic look. Is, is that something that the club can do or is, is that something that's kind of tied up with your, your kind of shirt yeah. uh, manufacturer? I think it's more tied up with the legal thing of somebody putting money into the club and then their, their name not appearing on the shirt. So it's more to do with that than the shirt manufacturer or anything else. You know, and, and if you start going down that route and you had lots of people without a sponsor's name, whoever it may be on the shirt, then that sponsor would quite rightly be going, hang on, why am I putting in money into your football club? So shirt sponsorship will be here now, I think, forevermore. I mean, you do see the, the odd team like Barcelona who might go a season without having a shirt sponsor. or, or Probably not anymore. <laughs> probably not anymore because they're desperate for cash, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, we will, we will have a sponsor. On. We, will, we are looking at a, another sponsor for next season because, of course, JMP are coming to the end of their contract for sponsoring the shirts. And um, we're already looking around, you know, for potential sponsors. And, and just finally, what, what can supporters do to, to help you and you and Glenn? 
you know, is it joining the supporters trust? Is it what, what advice would you give to sort of support young and old? What, what can they do to help York city kind of, you said this season is probably yeah. going to be your most difficult. What, what can supporters do to help that? It's um, turning up, you know, cause that's all putting money into the club behaving. You know, we, we spend a lot of money on stewards and on, um, well, it's been some money on seat repairs, things like that. And, and so please behave, stay off the pitch. Don't throw things on the pitch. Respect the seating. Get involved in fundraising events that the Supporters Trust organise. I don't want to say anything yet, but I know there's one sort of reasonably reasonably big event being planned for later on this year, which will be great. And hopefully lots of people will, will get involved. And then the other side of that is then if something isn't working or they've got ideas, just let us know. Talk to us because... We are still learning. We've made a few mistakes. Uh, we put the season, uh, took the tickets on for the first seven games of the season and um, Notts County rang us up and said, get our tickets off sale quick. We'd never thought about it, but they only have an allocation, maximum allocation, about 1,500 tickets. They've got 4,000 season ticket holders and they were worried that just anybody would buy the tickets. So there was a, a, a learning experience for us. So, you know, we're not going to be perfect. We are making some mistakes, but we're learning from them. So if anybody has any help, uh, offers of help, if they have ideas, if they have things that we're not doing very well, please just let either Glenn or myself know and we're working to make everything better. Yeah. And if they've got a digital marketing degree, send the yeah, CV in. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alistair, it's, it's been fascinating listening to you and, and you know, both about your kind of support for York City and, and your kind of ideas and, and, and your kind of philosophy going forward. So, you know, I hope you've enjoyed uh, speaking to us on Hospital Ball and, and good luck. No, it's been great. Um, thank you very much for having me. And let's, let's keep fingers crossed for a good season. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Alistair was someone that I had never met before. I know quite a few York City supporters already knew Alistair before he was on the board. I wasn't one of those people, but I found him really interesting to speak to. We spoke quite at length after the interview as well off air, and we shared quite a lot of the same sort of philosophies about football and, and the football club going forward. So hopefully fans will be able to see, including myself, will be able to see that kind of going forward. As mentioned at the top of the show, thanks again to uh, Jim Calverley, who um, essentially set this interview up. It was really nice to be approached by the club to do it, and hopefully people have enjoyed, enjoyed listening to it. This also gives me a good opportunity to uh, thank people again for all their support of the last series, Series 9. Download figures were the highest we've ever had on our new platform, Captivate, which we moved to in, in April this year. It's been really nice to read comments that people have said about the episodes uh, and all the positive kind of things that people have said about the players and the podcast in general. Also really good to see the podcast getting into the top 100 Apple podcast charts again, which shows that, you know, and there's a lot of football podcasts out there, so it's always a bit of a privilege to be up alongside some quite big names really in, in the charts also probably good for me to repeat what I said at the end of the Brian Pollard episode that the Series 9 was is, is very very likely to be the last ever series I do uh, the podcast is still going forward it's just going to move to a bit more of a, a kind of one-off kind of model Alistair was, was the first one of us there's another one coming out at the end of hopefully the end of August maybe early September uh, it's just going to be much easier for me to do with my kind of personal circumstances and uh, I've already spoke about that on previous episodes so people know what that involves 
terms of helping us as a podcast again if you're able to donate that's great it's justgiving.com forward slash your hospital radio appreciate cost of livings going up and stuff like that and maybe money is difficult to kind of give to give to us as a charity but you can help in other ways uh, if you listen to this on apple please do give us a review that's really helpful if you listen on spotify very easy to click a rating for us preferably five stars but whatever you think it's worth that's really helpful to us as well and just kind of keep spreading the word about the podcast even on this series nine i've had someone say that they're a massive york city fan and have been for years but have only just discovered the podcast so there are still people out there i think who don't really know what a podcast is and don't realize how simple it is just to kind of click on the captivate link and listen it's all free you know we pride ourselves on not kind of having those inbuilt adverts on it okay we have sponsors and stuff but we try to keep it as uh, free as we can so if you can spread the word that would be great so until the next one off and um, thank you very much <laughs>